Hello and welcome. You are listening to me, Alice, on a special edition of the Backtracker History Show, in honour of all those who have served and are serving. In this show, you'll be hearing what life was like on the battlefront, in the soldiers' own words. Now, let's remind ourselves about Remembrance Day, which is informally known as Poppy Day, owing to the tradition of wearing a Remembrance poppy. Remembrance Day is a memorial day, observed in the Commonwealth Member States since the end of the First World War, to remember the members of their armed forces who have died in the line of duty. Following a tradition inaugurated by King George V in 1919, the day is also marked by war remembrances in many non-Commonwealth countries. Remembrance Day is observed on the 11th of November in most countries to recall the end of hostilities of First World War on that date in 1918. Hostilities formally ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. The tradition of Remembrance Day evolved out of Armistice Day. The initial Armistice Day was observed at Buckingham Palace, commencing with King George V hosting a banquet in honour of the President of the French Republic during the evening hours of the 10th of November 1919. The first official Armistice Day was subsequently held on the grounds of Buckingham Palace the following morning. During the Second World War, many countries changed the name of the holiday. Member States of the Commonwealth of Nations adopted Remembrance Day, while the US chose Veterans Day. During this show, we'll be reading out letters from real soldiers from all the wars. And the first one is from the Boer War, which lasted from October 1899 to May 1902. And the following letter was received by F. Harris in Downen Road, Kingswood, whose son, Corporal G. Harris, was on the front line. In our last fight, we lost 13 men, one killed and others taken prisoners. We also lost 40 horses. We have had some rough times, but I'm glad to say the war is almost over now. We've been back about a week and are now waiting for orders to go home. The war has been a very hard one for some of us. We have lost very heavily, and the Welsh too. A lot of our men had their horses shot from under them. The noise from the guns was something awful. Some days we had food to eat and had to lay down at night with everything on and sleep with our guns at our side. But I'm glad to say it's almost over now, and I'm still alive. I was bearer to one poor dead sergeant who had not a friend in the world, his wife and children being all dead. Our band played the dead march at his grave. This next letter is from Private W. Vincent of the South Wales Borderers Mounted Infantry in a letter to his wife whilst he was serving in the Boer War. We're here at the Modder River, leaving this morning for Paddy's Drift. I suppose you've seen in the papers about us losing a lot of men. Six killed and fifty wounded and prisoners. It is awful to see them. We buried them just after the fight. One of our men had nine shots in him. We had a lot of Bristol men killed and wounded. This last fight lasted twelve hours. It's an awful sight to see fellows coming in stripped naked and wounded. The Boers robbed them. One of our men rode right through the enemy and they were firing at him all the time and never got one shot. 
There are six men wounded and missing now that we know of. It is quite right what you see in the papers about the crucifix not being damaged. I saw one church all in ruins, with the crucifix, life-size and coloured, not damaged a bit. Well, to get on with my tale, we were getting up fairly near to the firing line when the Germans started shelling us along the road. Luckily there was a good ditch at the side of the road, and it did not take us many minutes to be in it. Our hands and faces were stung with nettles, but that is a mere detail up against the shells. We got out of that very well. I believe there was only one fellow hit, and that was in the leg. Going into the trenches, which, by the way, had been christened the Gate of Hell, we had to go through water over our boots. Goodness knows what it's like in the winter. The trenches we held had only been taken from the Germans about a week or so, so we had bags of work to do on them. We were working day and night, besides doing ordinary trench duty, sentry, etc., but there was not a place to sit down, leave alone lie. So you can tell how nice that was after our march. But it is no use grumbling when in the trench. You have to put up with things and also look after yourself. Shells were buzzing over the whole of the time. And occasionally, as fast as we could send them, and our artillery was doing the same. You cannot imagine the noise. Our casualties have practically all been killed through shells. The German trench opposite us is only 14 yards away. In one way it is good, in another way it is bad. You see, you are quite near as they dare not shell too much in case of damaging their trench. On the other hand, they can still use trench mortars and sap in under and possibly blow up our trench. Of course we can do the same thing and do, but it's just a question of who is first. I did not have a wash or shave for a week, and I should have liked you to have had a look at me on coming out. I cannot really explain in writing what it was really like. The following day we marched six miles to get a bath, which was only a bucket of water and turps and petrol in a small tub. They gave us a clean shirt and a pair of socks, so imagine how happy we were to think we did not have to wash our old ones. I must say they have given us a much better time in rest camp on this occasion, and we are feeling the pink again. That was a letter from Lance Corporal S.R. Moore of the 6th Service Battalion Somerset Light Infantry, writing to his parents at 33 Chandos Road, giving his impressions of Ypres in World War I. According to local accounts, the first contact for the people of Ypres with the First World War was the arrival of thousands of German troops on the 7th of October 1914. They began to enter the town from the southeast along the road from Menin. It is said that they reckon about 10,000 troops were billeted for the night in the halls of the cloth hall, in schools, the army barracks, the waiting rooms of the railway station and in houses with the local people. The mayor, Mr Collart, advised the people of Ypres to stay calm and remain in their homes. On the 8th of October, the Germans moved out, but before they went, they requisitioned what they need, including horses and wagons. They also emptied the town's coffers 
of 62,000 francs. A few days later, on the 13th of October, troops of the French and British armies arrived, passing through the town to the east and taking up defensive positions to hold up the advance of the German army. From that time, the town was to become embroiled in war for the next four years. Almost every building would be razed to the ground by November 1918. The day before we came out of the trenches, the Germans shelled us for about two hours. They damaged our parapet in one or two places, but I'm glad to say no one was injured. You can hear the shells whistling towards you, and you promptly get into your dugout, or booby hutch as some of us call them, and then wait for the results. It's a fine occupation, waiting for death as it were, but we're still doing our little bit. The Germans seemed to go in for shelling the villages close to the firing line in the hope of killing any of the population or causing devastation. The destruction of churches and property is their pet hobby, and some of the places we've been in, which are not a few, are absolutely in ruins. There's hardly a complete building in some of them. I feel sure if some of the slackers could see the sights such as we've seen, they would not hesitate to do their bit. The regulars think the world of us, and anyone with tea on their shoulder straps are treated with respect. We hold a good name, and are going to uphold it. That was a letter from Corporal B. Hare, formerly on the reading staff of the Western Daily Press, who writes from somewhere in France to Mr. Sumter, thanking him for a parcel of chocolate but also describing a bit of what it was like at the front line. Not only are there letters, but there is a wealth of memories out there waiting to be told. Like this one from Chris Topps of Kingswood, who tells a story of his granddad, Tom Besant from Portishead, who was in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. I'm going to apologise in advance for the recording. It was quite a windy day. First of all, how uh, he got shot in the leg. Well, he was in Ypres in the First World War, uh, and unfortunately, he was in no man's land, on his own, wounded, and had to stay in no man's land for two days. He crawled back to his own trenches, managed to get to an aid post. From there, he was brought back into the UK, and then he went to convalesce in a hospital in Birmingham. Whereupon he married the nurse, which is where the family, it said, started up. And he was the most wonderful character. Uh, and uh, he was also uh, in India, uh, in a campaign over there. And he was shot there as well, but through the cheek. And the bullet went through the bottom of the his chin and out through his cheek but he, he got better from that but over the years some of the things that he used to do his little party trick was he used to love woodbines woodbine cigarettes he used to send me as a little boy seven years old up to the shop at the top of the road to buy a packet of five woodbines 
and an eight o'clock razor blade. Then I would get a little bag of sweets, a halfpenny or a penny to spend on some sweets. Take that back to him, and then Grandad would go and have a shave. He'd come out, he'd finish his shave, he'd light up one of his woodbines, and his most favourite trick was to blow his cheeks up and blow perfect smoke rings out of the tiny little pinhole that was left in his cheek. And these came out with a puff, 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 just like an Indian sending signals. Wonderful old guy. This next letter was written by a young Bristol soldier whilst he was a prisoner in Germany. This letter is not only amazing because it tells the story of an unsuccessful attempt to escape, but incredibly, the German censor allowed it through. In the letter to his father, he writes, It is only by the worst of luck and the best of German organisation that I'm not home with you all now. It's been many long months since first I conceived of the idea of trying to escape from here to Holland and from there home. Well, after a lot of trouble and very difficult preparations, I put the idea into operation last November 25th at midday, whilst at work. I was away from this prison from Thursday midday to Sunday night 11 o'clock November 28th. After creeping through forests, over country woods, copses, and all kinds of difficult places, travelling by night only, and the day lying hidden in forests, I was captured on Saturday night, 8.30, by German sentinels. Where do you think? Only a hundred yards from my goal, the German and Holland frontier. One hundred more, and I should have been a free man, free to return to you all, and have Christmas with you. I think this is about the worst stroke of luck I have ever had. After swimming through the Lippo in snowstorms, picking my way through snow-covered ground, forests, woods, copses, streams, ditches, barbed wire fences, and lying from 6.30am each morning until the evening, dead still without covering in deep snow, practically frozen, through and through with only what food I could carry in my pocket and only a small compass to guide me. After all of this, because my legs were frozen from the knees downward, I was captured 100 yards, a paltry 30 to 60 seconds walk from the frontier, over which, had I been able to take one step, I should have been a free man. And that's what I call bad luck, don't you? And now we have a letter from a captain that gives a vivid story of the early stages of the Dardanelles campaign. We are indeed fortunate to have witnessed the most brilliant feat of arms in the whole annals of the British Army. To wit, the landing of a division. It is perfectly astounding how anyone ever reached land alive, and every survivor of those splendid Lancashire Fusiliers merits a VC. A circular bay barely half a mile wide, flanked by a hundred foot high cliffs, was selected, and the fleet appropriated 300 yards to each warship. 
After a bombardment which apparently left not a living soul untouched, the order was given to commence landing operations. Our gallant Lancashire swarmed ashore over the dead bodies of their comrades and scaled the 100-foot-high cliffs with their full packs on. Then the Turks bolted, and our splendid men took the Turkish trenches at the point of the bayonet. If the Turks had stood firm, no living soul could ever have got a footing on the peninsula. The Australian contingent landed a mile lower down than it was intended, with the result that they met with practically no opposition, whereas, had they gone to their right place, they would have been decimated by masked batteries and wire entanglements underwater and on shore. And such wire, I got a piece which had a shell cut. It is German, of course, and cannot be cut with the strongest nippers. If the Turks had been clever enough to cement it in, no one could have ever landed. We had two narrow escapes yesterday. A German tall monoplane dropped three bombs and they burst all 20 yards from us and killed three men. Then we had to inspect some trenches in the afternoon and they shelled us from six miles off. And one shell went right over the staff and burst in the Indian mule camp. I think they must have a German officer hidden with an observation station right forward. However, our 15-inch howitzers will make short work of their forts on the reverse slopes, which cannot be reached by the guns of our fleet. All the equipment, air service and leadership is German. One might be in France. German guns, Mausers, and ammunition I picked up was made by the Karlsruhe der Waffe and munitions fabricant. I saw the Turkish prisoners brought in. Some quite European middle-aged troops and some fearful cutthroats amongst them. They say they've had no food for three days and are driven on by the Germans and have no stomach for fighting. Batches of 75 and so on surrender voluntarily. The French 75 guns are marvellous and doing good work. They got amongst the Turkish reserves yesterday and killed 1,000 of them. The Australians are fighting well. Modern warfare is absolutely hell at night. By day, barring a few rounds for ranging and an occasional salvo from the warships, and furious bursts of shrapnel from Turkish guns trying ineffectually to reach our aircraft, all is still. The goats browse in the valleys, swallows, butterflies, larks all skimming over the poppies and the ripening barley. Not a soul was visible. With good glasses you may pick up with practiced eye, trench lines, voila too. But at night, what raging, blazing, banging inferno let loose. From nightfield till dawn, incessant raining shrapnel and shed star shells with their ghostly light showing the rushing bodies and glittering bayonets' vivid silhouette. Then the fierce crackle of musketry, the sharper rattle of the maxims and the pom-pom from the quick firers, followed by the roar of the 60-pounders, the dull buzzing of the Turkish howitzers on the slopes and all above the deep boom-like roar of the 6-inch, 12-inch and 15-inch naval guns. You can follow the whole flight of the 15-inch shells. It's very interesting to watch. Shrapnel bursts of a bright red flame, our high explosives yellow, and so you can follow the course of the battle for all of forts at night. And woe betide the luckless Turks, who at dawn are caught in the open by the French 75mm guns. They are mown down in batches of shrapnel bursting at the rate of 32 minutes with unfailing accuracy. What we want are men, men, men. Reinforcements are urgently needed. To force the Dardanelles is going to be a costly business, but it must and will be carried to a successful end. But it all depends on how many men reach us. 
If we get sufficient reinforcements, we can easily hold the Turks, as their heart is not in the fight. In the day facts. Here's a few facts about World War II that I hope brings it home to you. Britain had guaranteed Polish sovereignty after Hitler flouted the Munich Agreement by annexing Czechoslovakia. Neville Chamberlain declared war on Germany at 11.15 on the 3rd of September 1939, and two days after their invasion of Poland, his speech was followed by what would become the familiar sound of air raid sirens. When Germany invaded Poland, the Polish losses included 70,000 men killed, 133,000 wounded and 700,000 taken prisoner in the defence of the nation. It was always assumed that during the Second World War, the Germans bludgeoned their way to victory with a highly modern and mechanised army and air force that was superior to anything the Allies could muster in May 1940. The reality of World War II was very different. On the 10th of May 1940, when the Germans attacked, only 16 of their 135 divisions were mechanised, that is, equipped with motorised transport. The rest depended on horses and cart or feet. France alone had 117 divisions. France also had more guns. Germany had 7,378 artillery pieces, and France, well over 10,000. It didn't stop there. The Germans could muster 2,439 tanks, while the French had 3,254, most of which were bigger, better armed, and armoured than the German panzers. In 1944, an Allied army crossed from Britain to free France from Nazi rule. One year later, Allied armies invaded Germany, forcing the Germans to surrender. After nuclear attacks on Japan's major cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan also surrendered to Allied forces in August the same year. World War II had ended, but the death toll was extremely high. Around 64 million people died. And that's more than the entire population of the United Kingdom. It's easy to get lost in the figures when you're talking about numbers so big. But these were people. Brothers, fathers, sons. And here are just a few local ones 
that perished in the wars. Joseph Francis King, or Frank to his friends, was in the second Berkshire Yeomanry. His parents were James and Sophie, and he lived in North Street, Downend. But he was born and raised in Mangotsfield, the son of a market gardener and the youngest child of seven, with four sisters and two brothers. Frank volunteered for the Canadian Machine Gun Corps in November 1914 in Calgary, Canada, when he was just 15 years old, giving his birth year as 1892. He served with the Canadian Expeditionary Force in France and Belgium. Frank was listed as wounded in August 1917, possibly sustaining his wounds during the Battle of Hill 70 in the Pas de Calais, France, where poison gas was used. He died just before his 19th birthday, and his death being registered in Bristol. Cornelius Goodfield was born in Wick, the son of an agricultural labourer and the eldest child of five children, with two sisters and two brothers. In 1891, at the age of 14, he was working as a servant on the Albury Court Estate in Fishponds, and in 1901 was employed as a sawyer. He married his true love, Ellen Kendall, on Boxing Day 1910 at Stapleton Holy Trinity. Cornelius enlisted in the army in June 1916, initially serving in the Gloucestershire Regiment, and he was active in the field from October 1916 onwards, where he fought in the Battles of the Somme. On the 18th of November 1916, he was admitted to the Second General Hospital with contusions to his face, his right arm and his right thigh, but was discharged back to duty the following day and awarded a wound stripe. Eight months later, Cornelius died of wounds in the run-up to the Battle of Passchendaele. Frederick George Room was an acting Lance Corporal. He was in the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment and he died on the 19th of January 1932, aged only 36. In a supplement in the London Gazette of the 16th of October 1917, describing his courage and his actions, it says... On 16th of August 1917, at Fresenburg, Belgium, when the company which was holding a line of shell holes and short trenches had many casualties, Lance Corporal Room was in charge of the stretcher bearers. He worked continuously under intense fire, dressing the wounded and helping to evacuate them. Throughout this period, with complete disregard for his own life, he showed unremitting devotion to his duties. By his courage and fearlessness, he was the means of saving many of his comrades' lives. letter is from Private E. Pierce of the Battalion Rifle Brigade to his parents in Marlborough Street, Bristol. He sent some verses written by a comrade after the Battle of Surprise Hill. You have heard about the night attack and how we took the hill. 
and how we rushed their sentries to capture or kill. You have heard how we went about the scramble, left and right, the valleys and the charging, when we took the hill at night. There were not many of us, but what there was was good. We couldn't all be heroes, but we all did what we could. We left the camp at dead of night, a dodging of the moon, and getting kind of anxious for their searchlights coming soon. We crept up quiet and gentle when the moon was out of sight, for you can't afford to make a noise when marching out at night. And up we went to scrambling and tumbling all about, up, up, and up, and over the top. Then bang! The shots rang out. Fix bayonets! Charge! Hooray! Hooray! We dashed towards the guns. And volley! Ready! And now the fight begins. And now the sappers have the guns. And now they light the fuse. And then goes up the blooming gun. Retire! No time to lose. They thought we would surrender. And wouldn't make a fight. They didn't know the sort of men as took their guns that night. And bullets fall like drops of rain, and lots of men were hit. But they couldn't stand our charging, no, not a little bit. And when with anxious faces, we asked with hearts that stilled, well, How many have we wounded? And what's the total killed? Ah, chaps, that puts a damper on. Just for time or so. When you hear who gave their life's blood, some comrades that you know. Our losses too were heavy, both officers and men. Killed and wounded, sixty odd, and some won't charge again. But the deed we done was noble, and brave as ever seen. Because we tried to do our duty, for our country and our queen. And now I fear our hour is up. I hope you enjoyed the show, and for really making this show, I'd like to thank the vocal talents of Nick Stott, Simon Green, Molly Jeffries, Joe Wilson, Henry Arnold, Mike Clark, Sam Vernon, and Adam Price. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com So thank you so much for listening, and until next time guys, take care, and look after each other.